Hey everyone, welcome back to Chris's Courses and our current series on questions in Genesis. We're looking at the first book of Scripture and seeing what kind of questions it wants us to ask about who God is and who we are as God's people. So today we're going to be picking up in chapter 17 and 18, and now we're kind of in the the second major section of the book of Genesis, as we've talked about before, most divided into the first 11 chapters that are about God's call to all of creation, calling the world into being, and then seeing how humanity continues to mess up that creation to the point that it almost seems hopeless. And so in chapter 12, we've had this shift to the call of Abraham. So now God, as a way to make things right with all of creation, God's going to focus on this particular family. He's going to give them a land and a calling. Eventually, they'll be given a way of life with the the law. And it's like a focus group, right? This is the metaphor that we've used. It's not that God no longer cares about all humanity and all creation. It's that the, the method for which God is going to take care of everything is through this family. As God tells Abraham in chapter 12, I'm going to bless you, and you will be a blessing to all nations. I'll bless all nations through you. It's something that Paul calls the gospel in advance in the book of Galatians that we looked at last week. So God's focus is still everyone, but it's going to be centralized here. The other thing that we've seen through these stories so far with Abraham and Sarah are these cycles of trust and mistrust, right? They, they do what they're called to do. God tells Abraham, just go, leave your land. And he does, even though he doesn't know where he's going. He doesn't really know who this God is. And yet then, once he gets there, he passes off his wife as his sister, right? So then, uh, trust to mistrust. And then, as we saw last time, uh, he puts his faith, he believes God when God says it's still happening, even though it's taken a while. But then Sarah is the one that leads them to kind of take their promise into their own hands, and they try to, to have this child they're waiting for through uh, their slave, Hagar. And we're seeing another pattern there. We'll, we'll see this continue even in this story of, even though the promise is focused on Abraham and Sarah and their family, God still blesses people outside of that. Hagar is still cared for, this marginalized person. God still sees her, and God still blesses her son as well. God's blessing is not limited, and we'll see how that continues to work out. So we're going to pick up in in chapter 17 here, and what we basically get is another story of, of the promise. So chapter 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you, and will make you exceedingly numerous. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You shall be the ancestor of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the ancestor of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land where you are now an alien, all the land of Canaan, for perpetual holding, and I will be their God. So in many ways, this promise is kind of parallel to chapter 15. It's explaining it a little more fully and in different ways, but a consistent thing we see through Genesis is is stories kind of being told and retold 
We'll talk more later about why that, why that is and what might be happening there. But one of the things that we see here, God calls himself, uh, at least in that translation, the God Almighty. Now, this translation is of the, the Hebrew phrase, El Shaddai. Now, some of you may have heard that before. I think Amy Grant had a song about it. Uh, and so El Shaddai, El is the word for God. And Shaddai, actually, people aren't entirely sure what exactly that means. Uh, scholars are still debating it and divided on it. Almighty is a possible translation. Uh, it seems there might be a connection to the idea of the mountains. So it's saying God of the mountains. And you could take that as a metaphor to mean uh, God's might, God's consistency and strength. But it could mean more than that, right? God's defining trait isn't necessarily God's might. And so, at least here when God appears, it sounds like it's been 13 more years. You know, I, I say this every time, but, you know, numbers and ages, sometimes they may be more metaphorical than, than literal. But the point is, it's, it's been a long time. And Abraham is probably still wondering, why is this not happening? One of the things that God does here to, um, you know, assure Abraham is to actually change his name to Abraham, right? I've, I've kind of been inconsistent in not saying Abram all the time, but now he is Abraham, and even though the, the names are very similar, it seems like uh, he's being, at least according to some translations, going from a name that means exalted ancestor to ancestor of a multitude. So even his name is pointing to this idea that uh, nations will come from him. Throughout, uh, especially the Old Testament, when, when names are changed, there's usually a deep significance to that. It, every name has some sort of meaning. And so when God changes somebody's name, that's, it's really changing their identity, who they are. God is saying, this is who you are now. And what God is giving is more clearly called a covenant. We saw that some last week with the, this you know, odd ceremony of cutting the animals in half to cut a covenant. Uh, but that's part of it here, this, this new identity for who he is, who his people will be. And it's directly said that this is going to be an everlasting covenant. I mean, is there any indication that Israel can lose its calling? Uh, no. It's Again, what we see throughout this is it's not that Abraham did all these good things, and so God rewards that with, okay, now I'm going to make a covenant with you. It's God chooses to do that. It's God's own initiative, and they can't lose it. Right? There's, as we're about to see, there are things that are expected from them, from Abraham, but the calling starts with God, and God is going to be faithful. As, as Paul says in Romans 11, as he's trying to work some of this out, as he's looking at his own situation and what God's doing with Jews and Gentiles, he says the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So it's not something that they should worry about losing, but there are still terms. So let's see how that comes into it with the idea of circumcision, starting in verse 9. God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which I sh you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Throughout your generations, every male among you shall be circumcised when he is eight days old, including the slave born in your house and the one bought with your money from any foreigner who is not your offspring." And he gives on a few more instructions about that. Any who is not shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So this is a sign, right? Circumcision. Now, we, we know from other sources that this was an ancient ritual practiced by many cultures in this time. 
And so God is using something that would have been familiar to their people. Uh, it's, again, a consistent thing we're seeing. God meets people where they're at. God will use their language. God will even use their rituals in order to communicate something. It doesn't mean that in circumcision is inherently something God wants. It's God working through uh, their culture. Now, you know, why different people would do it in this ancient, in the ancient world? Uh, many think it might be connected to fertility, which you can imagine with, you know, where this procedure takes place, why that might be a connection. Uh, now, we as Christians tend to have negative associations with circumcision, at least in terms of viewing it as, as a spiritual thing. Uh, you know, we, and you see what Paul talks about in a book like Galatians to, to understand why. You know, to think of it as it's a work that you have to do in order to be saved. But I think, at least here, again, we're looking at Genesis and its context. How can we view this positively? I think it's showing the relationship between faith and action. Biblical faith is never just cerebral. It's never just something in your head or just a feeling. It's always connected to to things that you do. Uh, you know, it's it's at least metaphorically, it's about serious, committed faith. <laughs> you know, you could say you got to have some skin in the game. Um, and, and later on, the prophets will talk about having a, a circumcision of the heart. So again, it's, it's a metaphor for being serious about this, really committing, uh, maybe again, as a metaphor to cutting away the things that, that get in the way of, of a true relationship. Um, you know, religious rituals, whatever they are, they're not inherently good or bad. Traditions are not inherently good or bad. Um, they can have power, but they can also lose that meaning, and they can become just an empty ritual. Uh, I mean, all these things that we've said about circumcision, we could have the same conversation about baptism, right? How can baptism be used in a positive way? How can it be used in a way that actually uh, takes uh, away the power or even gives us the wrong idea of what God is doing through it. You know, I, I think as, as we move to the New Testament, we can see why baptism is maybe a, a better sign. Uh, for one thing, it's, it's more inclusive, right? Only certain people can be circumcised. Uh, so baptism is for everyone, men and women, right? As Paul says in Galatians, when he's dealing with that issue, all that are baptized into Christ are one. There's no more male and female. And so I think it's pointing to that uh, a little bit. Um, but, you know, in, in our church, Churches of Christ, baptism has been a pretty big deal. And it, I think it does have a lot of power and a lot of meaning. But we sometimes maybe have talked about it in a way that, that loses the point where we're basically emphasizing the work that we do, right? I believe the right things. I make the necessary steps. I understand baptism correctly. And so I'm saved. Um, you're kind of taking God out of the equation a little bit, sometimes unintentionally with the way that we talk about it. Are we emphasizing God's work in these rituals, or are we emphasizing our work? You know, when, when it's all about you have to understand this correctly or it's meaningless, then that's leaning on your own understanding and not trusting God. But whatever these rituals are, Lord's Supper, circumcision, baptism, when it's seen as we're participating in what God is already doing, then it can have power, right? I, again, we've moved on from circumcision as being a spiritual necessity or, or a spiritual sign. Uh, but even with baptism, we want to think about it in the right way, that it is God's work. We're just participating in it. So moving on, uh, we'll see how Abraham responds to this uh, and brings up Sarah. 
God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall give rise to nations, kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Can a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Can Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live in your sight. God said, No, your wife Sarah shall bear you a son, and you shall name him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will bless him and make him fruitful and exceedingly numerous. He shall be the father of twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this season next year. And when he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. So, you know, we talk a lot about this period of, of Scripture as the patriarchal time, right? It's all about the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What we see here is that God cares about the matriarchs, too. God cares for Sarah. She also gets a new identity based on what God is doing. The promise is going to come through her. God's not going to just go around her because it doesn't seem to be working out. That seems to be what Abraham is kind of saying. And Abraham, you know, at this point, after all these years, he just kind of laughs at the idea that uh, at his age and at her age, they're going to have a child. And, you know, laughter, you kind of wonder how to take that. Is it a sign of doubt or something else? Uh, Again, I I just think after 23 years, you kind of have to have a sense of humor about it. And and God does too, right? He says, you're going to name him Isaac, and the word Isaac means he laughs. So God's not going to let him forget (laughs) that he he laughed about this. And yet, Abraham is still like, well, why why don't we just use Ishmael, right? Why is he still bringing him up? On the positive side, you know, this is still his son, and, and he still cares about him, regardless of who the mother is. But maybe on the negative side, it's, right, we've already got him. We are, right, Sarah and I, we figured out this alternative plan to sleep with Hagar, even though she didn't want that. Why don't we just go with that plan that we made up? Right, God's not going to do that. God has something in mind, and God is not going to leave Sarah out of this. But... God is also not going to leave out Ishmael. And so what we see here is that Ishmael receives the same blessing. He's going to be uh, the father of many nations. He's going to be fruitful and uh, numerous. He's going to have 12 princes that come through him, just like uh, the 12 tribes of Israel that we'll get later. And so he receives the same blessing, just not the same covenant, not the same calling. Election is about vocation, not salvation. Just because uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they're the ones that the covenant, the promise is coming through, doesn't mean that God is rejecting everyone else. Choosing one doesn't mean rejecting the other. So it's not about who God loves. It's not about who God saves. I mean, that, that concept really isn't even part of the, the discussion at this point. It's not about who God cares about. It's about who's going to carry out God's mission. And that is going to be through Abraham and Sarah and their child Isaac. So, again, we don't have to think that God hates certain people just be, and, and think that we're the ones that God likes. God may be working through a certain people, but it's not limited there. God has enough blessing to go around for everybody. So the end result is faithfulness. You know, the next several verses, I didn't read them, but it talks about Abraham 
follows through on the covenant and is circumcised and has everyone else do that. And so we're seeing him you know, taking on this, this sign of faith. So now that uh, there's been this promise, we're still waiting for the child. So we're going to get another story of a God appearing, but in a much more interesting and mysterious way. So let's pick up in chapter 18. The Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. He looked up and saw three men standing near him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent entrance to meet them, and he bowed down to the ground. He said, My Lord, if I find favor with you, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree. Let me bring a little bread, that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham hastened into the tent with Sarah and said, Make ready quickly three measures of choice flour, knead it, and make cakes. Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to the servant who had hastened to prepare it. Then he took curds and milk and the calf he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. So here we have a story of the Lord appearing as three men. And even through the story, it kind of goes back and forth between who they exactly they are, uh, God's identity, their identity. It goes back and forth between referring to them as, as a group, right? saying they, going or saying he. And so it's one of these things that, you know, there's, there's been a lot of different opinions, a lot of wondering about what this is trying to say. Now, the original audience probably would have understood them as angels, and yet something we've already seen and will continue to see is that even there, sometimes that distinction breaks down a little bit, right? When Hagar is talking to the angel of the Lord in chapter 16, uh, then she says, I saw the Lord. Um, when Jacob wrestles with a man or an angel, he says he saw the face of God. So even in their mindset, those, those distinctions, those boundaries are maybe a little less clear than we might think. Now, when we as Christians are looking at this from our perspective and we hear the Lord appeared as three people, uh, I think it's not surprising that a lot of Christians read the Trinity into this story. And in fact, in my office, I'm looking at it right now, there's a famous icon of this, uh, of the Trinity by Rublev, and it has these three, you know, they do kind of look like angels, they're sitting around a table, uh, they all look the same, but a little bit different, they're kind of looking at each other around a circle, and so it's kind of trying to illustrate this idea of them being the same but different and sharing this relationship of harmony. I'll share a picture of it in the comments if I can. And so, right, again, we can look at this and understand God as existing in this communal relationship of love. They may not have understood it that way in, in Genesis, but again, I, th I think it's so interesting the way that the seeds are, are still there. So when these people come, you know, there's a question of, does Abraham realize who it really is that's visiting? You know, when he does say Lord, when he refers to them in verse 3, but that word can just mean sir in their language. It's very flexible. And so it's, again, he's vague on whether he's referring to them as a group or as a single person. I actually think, though, it's a lot more meaningful, and it makes more sense to the story, if he just sees them as strangers, right? If he knew, like, oh, God showed up, I better do something nice for him. Uh, that actually isn't as, as meaningful, and I don't think that's what the story is trying to communicate. As far as he knows, these are just some people that came. And obviously, there seems to be something important about them. But what we're seeing here is a display of, of radical hospitality. And you see that even in just how much he provides. It's 
when it says three measures of wheat, I mean, this is making hundreds of, of loaves, potentially. Uh, and he slaughters an entire cow, a calf, for three or four people. Right? That, that can last a long time. Um, and so it's, it's going overboard. That says something about the kind of hospitality that, that we should show. You know, when we use that word, hospitality, uh, we think of something like, you know, the hospitality industry, you go into hotels and you expect that they're going to treat you nice. Why? Because, well, you're paying for it. Uh, or we think about when we're entertaining friends and family. You know, that's, that's usually who we're showing it to, who we invite over to our house is people that we already know. And we like to plan it out ahead of time. I know I do. I want to put it on the calendar and, and tell people, here's what you can bring. Um, and we also tend to think about, well, who really deserves it, right? It's going to be the people that I already know, people that I know are safe, um, and sometimes even people that we think can pay us back. But in, in the biblical mindset throughout Scripture, we see that hospitality is actually meant to be a lot more than that. There's nothing wrong with having friends over uh, celebrating with family, right? We're going to have Thanksgiving soon and hopefully get to be with loved ones. But is, our, is that the extent of our hospitality? Uh, you know, a, a quote that I read said, it's plain to see a person's integrity by the way they treat those they do not need. You know, sometimes we might show favor or show hospitality to people that are going to benefit us, right? If I do this for them, then they're going to owe me and they're going to have to uh, either, you know, give me a similar sort of party. Uh, they better provide the same level of food and things when I go to their house. Or maybe you have your boss over and treat them to a nice meal so that you're going to get a promotion. True hospitality, it seems, at least in the biblical mindset, is given to strangers. It's given to the weak. Right? This is something Jesus himself talks about. He says, when you throw a banquet, when you have a party, he doesn't say invite the rich and powerful. He says invite the lame, the poor, he, he specifically says, invite people that can't pay you back. Is that the way we usually do it? Um, I think, you know, again, Abraham doesn't know who these people are. He doesn't know what they can do for him. He just meets their need. So what do we do? You know, another way that people now talk about this is uh, the circle of affection, the circle of kindness. Right? Imagine the people that you know, the people you care about, it's kind of a circle, right? Everybody has some. There's almost nobody who has nobody that they would show any kindness to. But what tends to happen is that we show kindness to our kind of people, uh, to our kin, right? There's actually a connection between the word kind and kin, right? It's assumed that your family or your, your friends, your loved ones, those are the ones that will, you'll show kindness to. Like I said, pretty much everybody does that. It just depends how big or how small that, that circle is. And so the, the call, that what we're called to, is to try and expand that circle, to include more people in our circle of affection, our circle of kindness, than just family and, and just the people who are like us, to actually include people who are not like us. You know, it's about welcoming the stranger. But what we, can see, we see consistently here and throughout is that if you welcome the stranger, you might meet God. Abraham does, literally. Other places, like Hebrews 13, picks up probably on this story when the writer says, some have entertained angels without knowing it. So when we do this, more might happen than what we expect. Christ himself says that when we show hospitality, when we feed and clothe the, the least of these, the people that usually get ignored, 
He says we do it for him. So what are we doing with our hospitality? Again, nothing wrong with having friends over, but are we so concerned about being safe, about only feeling comfortable, that we're not extending it to the people that most need it? So who can you be hospitable to this week? And how much you experience God's presence through that. Now, also I would say it's important to remember this idea, this theme of hospitality, as we get into the story of Sodom and Gomorrah next week. Uh, Today, in chapter 18, we get the positive side with what Abraham does. Next time, we're going to get the extreme negative opposite with what happens when these same visitors go to those cities. But uh, that story, Sodom and Gomorrah, is not about what people often think it's about. It's, it's still connected to this idea of welcoming the stranger. All right, well, let's uh, finish up today with uh, Sarah and her response to these visitors, starting in verse 9. They said to him, where's your wife, Sarah? He said, there in the tent. And then one said, I will surely return to you in due season, and your wife, Sarah, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent entrance behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age, and it had ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have grown old, my husband is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? And Sarah said, And say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? At the set time I will return to you in due season, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied, saying, I did not laugh she was afraid. And he said, oh yes, you did laugh. Again, the promise is as much for Sarah as it is for Abraham. And here it even, you know, it mentions that they're old, which yes, we, we know we've heard that plenty of times. Uh, but it even clarifies that Sarah is not just infertile. She's even now past the age of, of having children. And uh, when she says, uh, am I going to have that pleasure again? I'll let you decide what kind of pleasure she's talking about. Uh, but how does God seem to feel about her, her laughter here and then even denying that she laughed? Again, I, I think this isn't supposed to be taken as a, you know, a complete lack of faith, um, something to be ashamed of and this is sinful. It's kind of playful, right? Again, God makes the name of their child. He laughs because of, of what they do. God has a sense of humor in this. And you know, it's kind of about how you laugh. You know, sometimes when something happens or you you hear someone tells you that you should think God is going to do this, you say, that just seems unbelievable, right? You can say that, those exact words in different ways. You could say that as if to say, that is unbelievable. I will not believe it. I refuse to believe it. And that is a lack of faith. But you can also say it in this kind of sense of astonishment and amazement. That just seems unbelievable, and it kind of is, but that doesn't mean that God can't do it, that God can't still be working in it. You know, the question God asks, is anything too wonderful for the Lord? And I think the answer should be no. It may be unbelievable, but God can still do it. Our belief is not the key. It's God's action. It's God's faith. And so we may be surprised by what God does. I hope we are. I hope that what God does in our life is not just things that we expect or things that uh, exactly the way we would want things to go. I think we should look forward to God surprising us in ways we wouldn't have expected. Um, and we can laugh at that. We can be surprised by it. 
Um, we can find it hard to believe sometimes, but that doesn't limit God. God is always at work. God is always doing something. It may be not be easy. We may have to wait a lot longer than we would expect, but God is still at work, and I hope we can trust that. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time.